Click the slide. Please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9. I'll be reading Acts, chapter 9, verse 31 through verse 42. Acts 9, 31 to 42. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was still with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon, a tanner. The word of the Lord, infallible, inerrant, historical, and life-changing. Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you for your grace as a pastor, as a teacher. Oh, use me to preach this text. By your Spirit, work in us that we would see. We would see the goods that you have for us to see. We would, we would be filled with hope in the midst of life's circumstances. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The main point of Christianity which is also the main point 
of the entire book of the Acts of the Apostles is that Jesus, the resurrected and ascended sovereign over all the universe, is sovereignly working by the Holy Spirit through the church, His people, the body. He shows it here in the book of Acts over and over many times through His chosen apostles and a few others with miracles and healings. And He shows it through new birth in the preaching of the gospel where dead people are brought to life in Christ. It's the way Luke began. He already wrote the gospel that we call the Gospel according to Luke. And he said, in that first account, O Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Meaning, this now, in the first 30 years that He's going to give us, is Jesus continuing to do and to teach. And we see it again this morning in our passage. Jesus healed the man. Jesus raised Dorcas from the dead. And then He saved many persons with the Gospel. He is sovereignly in control. And so in this room, no matter what your week has been like, No matter what fears have come your way, what trials you are in in this season of life, no matter what you fear the future may hold for you, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. William Shakespeare and One of his plays said, through his character, all the world is a stage. And we all, men and women, are but actors on that stage. Our passage shows us that Jesus is the author of the play. And not only that, He is the director of it. Tabitha dies. Hope is gone temporally. And Jesus says, now I'm going to rewrite that script. And I'm going to direct Peter to go over there and to do what I tell him to do. So just think about Loved ones in your life that you cry over, that you worry about, that you're burdened about. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ, He can turn that around in a nanosecond. Place your worries, your anxieties, your burdens, into His sovereign hands. Just consider yourself, you who are Christians. Look at your life. You love Jesus. 
not by the will of man, but by the will of God. That's why. Like our text, Tabitha, arise. Aeneas, get up and make your bed. Just put your experience in there. 1981, I heard Jesus say, not audibly, but while reading one of the Gospels, Joe, come to me. And that's you. And he's got the whole script written from beginning to end. He will complete what he started. You can trust him. You can rest in him. You can enjoy him in it. Because that miracle of resurrection of your spirit to become alive to God produces, according to our passage, a walk. A lifestyle. It's where I began in verse 31. Hear it. And walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church multiplied. And that walk we see then now again produces ministry like Dorcas serving others, Peter obeying the Lord. These miracles happen. All of these believers talking to family and friends and, and they all, most all, come to the Lord because through and in it all He is sovereign and He is reigning where we're going. But we've been in Acts for seven months, so I want to just take a couple minutes and just give us a recap of feel what we've seen so far up to where we again pick up this morning. It opens up with Jesus' resurrection, His appearance to His apostles. He teaches for 40 days Many, many disciples and His apostles. Then, at the end of 40 days, He has ascended unto the right hand of the sovereign authority of the universe. And then 50 days after His resurrection, He pours out the promised Holy Spirit upon that 120. And that day, Peter preaches publicly in the temple grounds and three thousand more persons come alive to Christ and believe. And within the first few months of the church, John and Peter get arrested. They get thrown in jail. They get brought before the religious court. And before they released them, they were warned by the authorities to stop preaching in the name of Jesus 
and about His resurrection. And they left and they refused to obey them. And they continued to preach Christ. And then Luke tells us this Jewish church in the city of Jerusalem grew to 5,000 members. At that point, we're about one year in. The church is about a year old since the day of Pentecost. And that Luke summarizes a whole bunch of stuff during now going in that, through that second year. He summarizes the love and the fellowship and the financial support the believers had for each other. He brings up that very fearful experience of the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira where he strikes them dead. Then he lets us know during that second year, one time all the apostles are arrested and thrown in jail and brought before the court. And before they're released, they're all beaten brutally with whips. And they came out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, their Lord and their Savior. And then, towards the end of almost two years now, the church has been in existence. Stephen is martyred. And on that very day, Luke tells us, is when the first great persecution of the church began with this Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, leading it. And that persecution goes on for at least another two years until Saul is converted to Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so at his conversion... It's been about four years now since the day of Pentecost. And then, three years after Paul's conversion, he finally makes it back to Jerusalem where he visits for two weeks and has to escape the city before they kill him. And he goes up north about 300 miles to his hometown of Tarsus in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So now, that's where we left off. And at that point now, it's been seven years since Pentecost. That's where we're at. And that's where Luke picks us up. Verse 31, chapter 9. And so, because Paul was converted, he's not the bandwagon leader of the persecution. Things calmed down. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee... And Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And now, as Peter went here and there, among them all, the churches and all these villages and towns of Judea, he came down also to the Christians or the saints who lived at Lydda. So, here's Peter. He's visiting town after town. There's churches in all these towns now. We're seven years in Jewish churches. And then Luke chooses to tell us two stories of miracles that God wrought through Peter. Okay. Why? You've you got to ask questions like that. Why does he tell us that? 
See, any historian, much less Luke, who is a very good historian, who's writing a very concise history, it's not long, it's very concise, of the first 30 years of the church. So any historian has to constantly decide which thousands of incidents, stories, anecdotes, which thousands do they leave out, and which very few do they include. So why does he do it? Many contemporary Christians today, in differing groups and movements, answer that question like this. It's obvious why he does it. He, he lets us know of Peter saying, Get up, paralyzed man who could not walk. Speaks to a dead body and she rises from the dead. He shows us that so that we all, all of us Christians, the church in all ages, would go ahead and imitate what Peter did by going out and performing miracles and raising the dead. So let's have classes on it and seminars on it and conferences on it and let's get about the work that is the normal Christian that's one answer. But just think about it for a moment. If that was the reason and the point Luke included this, don't you think he would have included just a little bit then? Peter grabbed all the church in Joppa and Lydda and Sharon together in order to encourage them and instruct them, guys, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Also, this is what you are supposed to go about doing. Seems like he would at least tell us that. But he doesn't. But it's just seems, well, maybe Peter did that and he doesn't tell us. Okay. Suppose Peter did instruct the church to go about praying. and That person's been dead for only two days. This goes raise them from the dead. Suppose he did that, and they went out and did that. Mr. Smith, Miss Jones, Bob, Jacob, Sally Sue, numbers of them over here, raised the dead, healed the sick miraculously. Don't you think Luke would summarize it, at least saying, over the next number of months in this area, because of Peter's instruction, through the members of the church, nine persons were raised from the dead. Forty-eight others were miraculously healed. And giving us names like he does with Aeneas and Tabitha. He doesn't because that is clearly not what happened. But God did will. He sovereignly willed these two miracles. Many more that Lucas even just summarized earlier. We know that. okay. But here, He sovereignly willed these, and we get specifics of what happened for His purposes. One raised from the dead, the other paralyzed, and then walks. Why? Because they are 
signs. These are wonders. They are signs that He wanted to happen in order to get attention. In order to drive home the main point Luke brings out twice in the passage. First, verse 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. In verse 42, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. God is sovereign in absolute control to do whatever He pleases, as we read in Psalm 115 this morning. At any time He pleases. He is sovereign over miraculous healings, sovereign over raising a dead person, and He was then, and He is now, sovereign over new birth, salvation. Many came to believe in Jesus. Why? Well, because God, through the preaching of the gospel of His people, the church, God raised sinners from the dead, spiritually. Just like He showcased in raising Tabitha, physically. This is how Paul would summarize this dynamic a number of years later when he writes in 1 Corinthians 1. For Jews, they demand signs. And Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we, as Christians, as apostles, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to the rest of the world. Gentiles. In other words, we preach Christ. Come to Him after laying out the Gospel. And they remain dead. They don't open their eyes. And they don't get up. That's his point. No miracle happens. Except after the comma, he goes on to say, but to those who are called. Tabitha, arise. To those who were called from among both Jews and Greeks, to them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Many believed, and they all came to the Lord. So let's go back to the beginning of verse 32. Look at these two incidents for a moment. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. 
Lydda is about 25 miles outside of Jerusalem, northwest towards the Mediterranean Sea. And so there is in Lydda, it's a fairly large town. There's a few thousand people there. And then he says, There he, that is Peter, found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, th that means that Aeneas must have been fairly well known in that town because he's a public beggar. There's no social security check coming in because he can't go to work now. He's got to survive. And Peter finds him. People know this guy. Like the man at the gate. Beautiful in Jerusalem a few years back. The text does not say whether Aeneas was a Christian or not. It doesn't say it either way. He may have been. He may not have been. We don't know. But Peter finds him. And he does, much like he saw his Lord do when he walked with him at the pool of Bethesda, says to him, well, this is the difference. Where Jesus constantly acted in His own authority. Peter doesn't say, I, Peter, tell you, get up. But verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, they saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now, what is, what is clearly implied here is that the Lord directed Peter to Aeneas in order that the attention of the people would be captivated to hear the gospel. The message of the life, the death, the Old Testament fulfillment of the promised one and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins to all who believe. He wanted their attention in that way at that time and that's why he did it. And he got their attention they heard the gospel and the Lord Jesus from His throne in heaven by the Spirit acted. And most of them were saved. Acted by the miracle of new birth. The Holy Spirit worked in Peter, worked in all the Christians, was working in Tabitha, Right? She, the way she served others and how giving she was. Or whether the Apostle Peter, he works in, but it is Jesus Christ who heals. It is Jesus Christ who saves, not us. Only if I could figure out a better way to say who Jesus is and what the gospel is, then people would surely come to believe.
We are to be faithful. Faithful to His message. And it doesn't need our tweaks. What saves people? Is it miracles? Is it signs? Is it wonders? If only that happened, they get saved? No. Not even when it's the Lord's sovereign miracle. That doesn't save anybody. I mean, it certainly helps the person. We're so happy. Dork is here alive. But it doesn't convert people. Only God saves. Only the Holy Trinity saves people through the preaching of the gospel of His people, the church. That's what it means in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul declared, I am not ashamed. It's just, why does he even say that? Is, is shame an issue? I think so. Humanly speaking, whatever culture you may be in, I am not ashamed. The world may try to heap shame on preaching Christ crucified. A God in the sky who will judge and cares about what you do with your sexual life or that there is a heaven and there is a hell. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says, why? Because it the Gospel. Let's pause again. If you know Paul in God's sovereign providence, the way he wanted things to work themselves out in the first century church was Paul was in a constant battle with other professing Christians who were constantly putting twists on the Gospel. Jewish legalism added to it. And he wouldn't do it. Even though he would avoid a lot of persecution and be a man-pleaser, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it, the clarity of the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, that was the power of God in the gospel being preached. Then Luke takes us to Joppa, which is a city right there on the Mediterranean Sea. And there is a bunch of Christians. There's a church there. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. That's her Aramaic name. That's their main language they speak, okay, in the land of the Jews in Israel in the first century. As Jews, their second language is be Greek. So she's called Tabitha. It means gazelle. Now, you want, how do you say gazelle in Greek? Dorcas. 
That's why in Greek it's translated, not transliterated, it's translated Dorcas, okay? Now, some of you, like, I'm looking at you, you may have a baby one day, and others haven't had kids yet, and you might have a little girl, okay? Just a word to the wise, if you're choosing between Tabitha and Dorcas, go for Tabitha. <laughs> Unless you don't like your kid, okay? Where am I? Right there, okay. She, Dorcas, was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill, and she died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples... Hearing, they had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay, obviously, because Tabitha died. Maybe the Lord will do something. So Peter rose and went with them. So here's Tabitha. She's a very much loved sister in the Lord. The fruit of the Holy Spirit was clearly flowing through her in serving the widows. She was very generous with her, with her money and her giving. And now something overtook her and behold, she's dead. They clean her body up as you would for burial. They lay her up in an upper room of a dwelling for viewing. Come by and see her as the widows who loved her. And she served them so well. And then at some point in the first hour or three or what, they sensed, maybe there's a spark of hope. Peter is just ten miles away. So, Jacob and Bartholomew go. Go get him. Maybe they ran half the way and walked and ran. I don't know. And it's a good, I mean, if you go really fast, you might do it in four hours. It was going to take you at least five hours. They get there, and Peter, would you come? And now there's another at least five-hour journey back to this town walking. During all that time, she died. Have you ever been with someone, right, when they have died and stay for hours? Feel the temperature? She's cold by now. They've washed her. Her skin is not nearly as pliable. It's getting harder and harder. By the time Peter gets there, she must have been dead for at least 24 hours, I would guess. And we pick up. Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived... They took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics. Look what, look what Dorcas has made. Look at these garments. When she was alive, but now she's dead. But Peter, he saw Jesus do this before too, before he raised someone from the dead. But Peter put them all out of the room. And he knelt down and he prayed 
And then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints, okay, come on up. And the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So picture, there's Peter in the room. It's just him in a dead body. And he goes down to his knees and he prays. I don't know what exactly, but I'm going to take a shot at it. Because he's there now. These men came to him. Come, I'm just going to... This is, what I th- this is what I think. He, by the Holy Spirit, when they said that, felt led. Yes, it's the right thing to do. Go to Joppa with them. Just sensed that you're supposed to listen to what your brothers are saying here. Go with them. And he knows why they want him to come. Because Tabitha is dead. And by he gets there, he goes to the room, and again, he just senses, send them out. He sends them out. He's got a strong sense. His Savior, his Lord, his friend, he ate with and drank with and, 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 and lived with and denied and hung out with after his death and ate with him then. His Lord, with whom he was moved away from the fire pit and the nice breakfast, and he's talking with Jesus on the beach at the Sea of Galilee about his future. But what about him? What about him? This is the Peter with Jesus seven years later now gets on his knees. Lord, I'm here in obedience to your guidance. You are sovereign over death. And so, demonstrate, demonstrate your power right now. And then, what I think is, the Lord moved in Peter strongly. Gave him, like he's had many other times before, the beautiful gate, this overwhelming gift. To do and to say what he said in obedience. He just has it. And he gets up and he looks at the dead body and he says, Tabitha, arise. And her eyes pop open. She sees Peter and she sits up. He said, Come on. Come on up now. And they open the door. And there she is. And they hug her neck. And then, in the text, then 
the greater miracle of the Lord's power over death happened. And it, her rising from the dead, became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. Many dead people were raised by the Lord. They believe. Spiritually dead people don't believe. They can't. But they believe. Because what happened is their eyes, like Dorcas as, as a pointer, they opened and they saw who the Father was. They knew that the Son of God was this Jesus they're telling us about. As they listened to the Gospel. I know that's what happened. I'm positive that is what happened. Because it's everywhere in Scripture. Just for an example, the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry said this in Luke chapter 10, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. No one knows. Oh, and other people do know. Other people will come to know. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's what what Jesus said seven years earlier in His earthly ministry was just as true here in the city of Joppa. Or like what He said in John chapter 6, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And later in that chapter, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is given to him by the Father. Dorcas is coming back to mortal life. She's already a believer. Her eternal life was secure. Her coming back to mortal life was a sign. It was a picture it was an historical event, and it was pointing to the all-important experience of the power of the Lord to raise from the dead God-neglecting, blind sinners to new life in Christ. The Lord used... His vessels. He used His chosen apostle, 
to heal Aeneas, to raise Dorcas from the dead. Then he used Peter and pastors in that church and all Christians around tables or in the marketplace. He used them as they tell of the hope of their great Lord who raised Dorcas, who healed Aeneas. They tell them the story, the good news of Jesus Christ. And He, our Savior, has been using His servants over the last 2,000 years as carriers of the Gospel to raise people, for Him to raise people from death into new creations in Christ. That's why Paul exclaimed in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on Jesus, I hear that, save me. Every one of them will be saved. But how, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Can't call if you don't believe. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach Unless they're sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Peter kneels down and he prays. Tabitha, get up. And he knew she would. Because Jesus Christ raised you from the dead. The power is God's. It is not the power of His servants. The power comes through God's gospel. That's true for the apostles who have a unique authority in church history and unique mission with signs and wonders and miracles. And it's true for all of God's children through Jesus Christ. Here's, here's how Paul sees us with himself or any believer down through the centuries. But we have... That's so what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure. Says, okay, the treasure is the message that's been handed down to us in the Scripture. It doesn't need our tweaking. It needs our clear thinking to let it flow through us as clearly as it was given. That's the treasure he's referring to. It is 
bigger, more valuable than raising a person who had died back to mortal life to die again. The treasure is the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it is utterly powerful to save because Paul knew we can't save anybody. But he knew our God can and he will and he plans to. So we go and we plant the bombs of salvation, which is the gospel. It's up to him to detonate and destroy their sin, destroy their past, and make them new creations in Christ. Let me just actually read the scripture again then. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Earthen vessels. In other words, he's saying, we're sinners. We're broken. We're dying. We're mortal. We're imperfect. We're messed up. But we are used by Him. And he says, God wants it that way. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. They all know what these are. Some, you know, you don't want to get up and go out to the outhouse at night. So you got one by your bed. There's an earthen vessel. And then you put other, more valuable stuff in other stuff, whatever. He says, that's what we are. And we are one of those valuable ones with the gospel going in. Nothing fancy about the earthen vessel inside of it is a treasure we have this treasure in earthen vessels here's the purpose in order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Just pretend it's not going off. It's focus. We back? It belongs to God and not to us. And so, as I began this sermon with verse 31, Verse 31, once all these people were raised from the dead, and like us, it creates a new life, a new lifestyle, a new walk that flows out of intimacy with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You can summarize the lifestyle the way that Luke did. In verse 31, it is a walk of a moving through life in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy 
Spirit who dwells in us. It is a walk of holy fear of the Lord. Precisely because the one we're referring to in dealing with is the one true God who is holy, who is just, and who is in absolute sovereign control of everything. It means there is such a thing as truth, as opposed to our culture where there is no truth. There's such a thing as objective truth, whether you believe it, agree with it or not, that does exist. There is a right over against a wrong. There is that which is good and there is that which is evil. There is sin. And every single one of us in this room have sinned millions of times. And not only that, the very core of the nature in which we came into this world was sin. At its core. And God, in the light of that, is just. He indeed is justice. And He will judge every human being who's breathing today on this earth. He will judge every one of us human beings in this room right now. And He'll judge us in perfect righteousness. He'll judge us in perfect holiness. But he says, and you don't lose the reality of that as a Christian. You walk in the fear of the Lord, but and in the comfort of the Spirit. Why do believers walk in the comfort of the Lord as they walk in the fear of the Lord? Because He raised us from the dead. Or to use another analogy, unlike the world around us who do not fear the Lord, we are no longer asleep to the reality of the fearful, holy God. We're awake. We've been raised to spiritual life from our eternal sleep. We've been awakened to walk in the fear of that overwhelming holiness. Now here's the key. This is what I think Luke is driving at. And that walking in the fear of the holiness, the essence of who God is, is gloriously tempered for every believer by the blood of Christ. And we know it because He made us alive. We're, we have evidence because I love Him. 
And he's taught us, you love him because I poured out the spirit of my son into your hearts, crying to the holy, fearful God, to me now, Daddy, Father, all my sins are washed away. Oh, on Judgment Day, He will deal with every one of us in perfect righteousness and holiness. We will see more clearly the sins we sinned, and we will rejoice more deeply, knowing not my righteousness do I bring myself. Paul cried out, in his epistle. I want to be found in him. Having no righteousness of my own. But only that which is a gift to me from God. The righteousness of his son. Perfect human righteousness. Put to my account. And so believer, because the Spirit's in you and you love him and you believe Comfort is abounding to you without denying the holy fear of who God is and what sin is. It's comfort because He lives in us. It's comfort, and I'm just going to let the Scripture give the answer, the second reason why. It's comfort by the Spirit because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead like Dorcas. We were dead in our sins, our trespasses. What happened was this. One day He brought a Peter into our lives. Whether through a book, through the Bible, through a sermon in a church on the street corner with a friend. He brought them and He made us alive together with Christ. Oh, by grace you have been saved. And what He did was this. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in spiritual places, heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's comfort. And don't miss the goal. He did it in order that in the coming future resurrection Ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's why every one of us who belong to Christ we live, verse 31, in walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. All the world's a stage, and we are all but actors in it. And the good news for every one of us who have come to the feet of the cross is that our sovereign Lord, our sovereign Savior is the writer of the script. 
He is the director of the play of our lives. He is the director of your todays and of all of your many tomorrows. So we're filled with hope. We're filled with comfort to continue to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the hope and in the joy and in the comfort of the presence of the Spirit. And that's why in a few moments we're going to sing. We're going to sing with our hearts the story of our lives that has been penned by our Savior. He scripted it for us. And He will direct us to the end of the play. And so as we do come up, I'm going to just read the poetry of what we're going to sing in a moment. Think about the words. When darkness veils His lovely face, you ever feel God might be hiding from you? feels distant. Darkness is overcoming your life. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale and trial of life, my anchor holds within the veil. For Jesus' blood was shed, put on the mercy seat in the heavenlies. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. When He one day in the future, the second coming, when He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness, alone, faultless to stand before the throne. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the, the sweetest frame, but wholly and totally lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground in this world is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let us sink.